everyone, I'm Natalie Alexander, and thanks for joining us on The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Library and Archives Geneva, where we aim to develop the conversation on multilateralism through listening to the stories and insights of various contributors. We are a library, so we're pleased to welcome authors as part of this conversation. And today we have a discussion with Alan Doss on his new book released in January this year called A Peacekeeper in Africa learning from UN interventions in other people's wars. Alan Doss served as special representative of the UN Secretary General in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Liberia, and head of the UN peacekeeping mission in the DRC, among other posts. He's now president of the Kofi Annan Foundation in Geneva, and he made his way to the library to speak with our director, Francesco Pisano, to share the essence of his book, which looks at his decade in four peacekeeping operations in Africa. But also he gives his insights from many years serving with the UN in peace operations, from the role of peacekeeping and how it's changed over the decades, what he's learned about leadership, and what he sees for the future of UN peace operations. He also shares some personal reflections on former UN Secretary General, the late Kofi Annan, and the legacies he left, not only as a leader, but as a person. It's a fascinating listen. Alan Doss is very passionate about this work. Hope you enjoy listening to this episode. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Today, I have the great privilege and pleasure, personal pleasure, to welcome on, the, on our podcast, Alain Doss. Alain Doss is a, a long, long-standing friend of the library. He's the president of the Kofi Annan Foundation. But today, I invited him in his quality as author, because his latest book is out. And it's called A Peacekeeper in Africa, Learning from UN Interventions in Other People's Wars. Alan, welcome on the next page. Thank you very much, Francesco. I'm delighted to be here. It's a great pleasure to see you in this new role as podcast guest. Alan, not everyone out there listening to this podcast will know in detail your impressive bio. I do. But let's tell the audience a little bit about yourself before we delve into today's topic. Well, my bio is a bio about the UN in a way. My whole professional career was with the United Nations. I had the great good fortune of starting very young. I was 21. I joined the United Nations in Kenya in the 60s and uh, spent the next four and a half decades with the UN in different parts of the world, working on different assignments. I, I always felt I had several jobs in one. So I was in development work through the UN Development Program. I was involved in humanitarian work, particularly in Southeast Asia. And in the latter part of my career, I was involved in peacekeeping and politics. So I saw, you know, the whole gamut of UN operations, both uh, in the field or in countries in Asia, Africa, uh, Europe, as well as at UN headquarters in New York. So I was, I have to say, extremely fortunate. I had a very varied, very interesting career and met many, many fascinating people and indeed many great leaders, one of whom, of course, was uh, Kofi Annan. So, and you wrote this book about peacekeeping. Now, before we go into the book and what readers can learn from your book, tell us a little bit about peacekeeping in general. In one of your 
pages that, that struck me in your book, you say that peacekeeping operations are relatively new in the long history of warfare. So this is absolutely true. So tell us about peacekeeping and how the UN as an organization goes about yeah. deciding when to deploy a peacekeeping yeah. operation. Well, peacekeeping through the United Nations is definitely uh, different. You know, armies are usually fielded to suppress or to defeat their enemies by force of arms. That's not the aim of UN peacekeepers. While they are armed, uh, usually, their aim is not to con conquer territory or to defeat an enemy. Their aim is to help produce or, or maintain peace. So there's a different mindset involved. You don't go with the same aggressive mindset that armies are normally trained to adopt. And this is, a, this is a challenge because when we bring peacekeepers in, we have to change a little bit their mentality. Uh, I, I worked with a, a very good Indian uh, uh, commander at one stage when I was in the Congo. And as he remarked, he said, you know, you don't go to war in tanks painted white. Uh, and I think that sums it up. That's the difference between what we do as peacekeepers and what regular armies do. Uh, but there's also another dimension, particularly in recent years where peacekeepers have been deployed, especially in Africa, to protect people, to protect civilians. That, again, demands a very different approach. For example, one of the things we had to tell all our peacekeepers was, look, you're not there to attack people. Generally, you can defend yourself and you should. But above all, you're there to work with people, which means you have to get out of your armored personnel carriers, talk to people, walk through villages. And they've done it. And they've done all kinds of very interesting things. For example, one way to protect women in, in particularly the, the Congo was to have uh, what we call market patrols, peacekeepers who accompanied women to the, the weekly market so they wouldn't be attacked. Uh, and violated. And so things like that don't come, that's not what armies normally do. And this is what makes UN peacekeeping different. Do you think that the UN is consistently successful in peacekeeping? Do you have any figures for us or overall, what is your experience? Well, I think the peacekeeping, I think it's worthwhile mention, has gone through different phases. It first began in the late 1940s, essentially as, if you will, the thin blue line dividing established at the time of a truce or a ceasefire to help keep the warring parties, state parties, separate. And some of those very early uh, peacekeeping operations are still going. Uh, for example, up in Kashmir, we have an observation mission there between India and Pakistan, the same in the Middle East. That, that was, if you will, the first generation of peacekeeping uh, operations. That changed exactly 60 years ago in 1960 when the United Nations deployed a big mission, uh, the first of its kind, to the Congo. It did it because the Congolese, just, Congo had just become independent. The government asked for support. The country was torn apart by rebellions and revolts, secession, infighting within the political parties and so forth. So for the first time, the UN was sent to actually help a country, not between two countries at war with each other, but a country which was at war with itself. And the pattern of peacekeeping since then changed dramatically. And it included not just armed uh, soldiers, but civilians to work on education, health, protection of human rights, and so forth. During the Cold War, that pretty much slowed down. 
for various reasons. And indeed, the Congo operation was, was part of that, uh, that problem because major powers took different views as to what peacekeeping should be about. The ending of the Cold War saw an explosion, if you will, tremendous expansion of peacekeeping operations all over the world. And those operations are what we call multifaceted, multidimensional. So yes, they include um, armed peacekeepers. They do have a responsibility to deal with uh, crisis situations where militias may be fighting or armed groups involved. But they also try to build peace as well as uh, keep the peace. Because what we found so often is that a peace agreement doesn't guarantee peace. Uh, they don't work often, and then peacekeepers find themselves once again in the middle of conflict. So most of the peacekeeping operations, the big ones now, are of the latter kind. And that's the ones that I was mainly involved in in my decade in peacekeeping operations. Do you think that peacekeeping is dependent on a healthy multilateral system? What What is really the yeah. link between the two? Yeah. Uh, it's indispensable. Uh, whenever the Security Council has been divided it makes it that much more difficult for peace, first to, to set up a peacekeeping operation, and then secondly, to sustain that operation, particularly when it gets into trouble. You know, I was in a couple of operations where we ran into really, really serious difficulties. Questions were raised about the future of the mission. But generally, the council was of one mind, and it enabled us to overcome the obstacles. If it hadn't been, then I suspect the, f the mission peacekeeping operations that I was in would have faltered and possibly failed. So it's really important for the council. You know, that's the irony, however, that when, when the Security Council, the members, are unable to agree, it makes the resolution of conflict or the prevention of conflict that much more difficult, but also that much more important to have peacekeeping available. And this is, this is, say, the irony, and it's, it's a tragic irony on times because we can see there is a need for operations, peacekeeping operations. But if council can't agree on what the shape of that operation should be, how it'll be funded and so forth, it makes it much more difficult. So when you mention the council, of course, you're referring to the Security, the Security Council. Security Council, yes, right. which so, must authorize all of these missions. Exactly. So for the benefit of those in our audience who wouldn't know how, how it happens, how are peacekeeping missions decided upon and deployed? Well, they are, I've called in my book, I've called them a political conjuring trick. Because what, you, what they are are a sometimes temporary convergence of interests around a situation and where the powers that be, particularly in the Security Council and especially the permanent members, agree that there has to be some effort made to prevent the conflict or end the conflict. They do so, however, for different reasons. And it's hard to get a consensus. I suspect it's becoming even harder now because of the divergences within the Council. So a peacekeeping mission is put together on an on an ad hoc basis. Of course, there's policies and there's guidelines and so forth, but each case is different because the U UN, I think it's very important for people to understand, has no standing army. It's not like a government in a, in a country, especially a big country, which has a large army, it has an air force, it has troops, it has ships, it has weapons, etc. The UN starts from scratch each time. Of course, it has experience and it's learned a great deal, sometimes the hard way over the years that it's been deploying these missions. But nevertheless, 
each mission has to be negotiated. And sometimes in the most difficult circumstances, why? Because there's a massive humanitarian crisis. People are dying in the tens of thousands. And there's a lot of pressure to get things done, to get a peacekeeping operation on the ground. And that, that's, that's hard because you have to, you know, sometimes, frankly, missions are, are, are the result of, of messy compromises. So let's tell the audience. How does it happen? It gets voted at the council? Yes, it gets voted. A resolution is adopted, but then there's negotiations in terms of the mandate of the mission, um, you know, what it's going to do and how it's going to be paid for. And that's a whole set of separate negotiations with different actors in the United Nations, the budget people and so forth. Now, there are some templates, there's, there's experience, uh, but you can't just uh, sort of take a past experience and replicate it because as I again I, I point out in, in my book every situation is different every country is different every country has a different history a different background and how it got to where it is that it needs peacekeepers so these negotiations sometimes can take a long time and to my mind unfortunately there's a tendency to start small and say well look let's let's see how this goes we have a peace agreement we're assuming it will work and therefore we don't need to and the result too often is, however, that when a crisis erupts, as they often do in peacekeeping, you don't have the means to really deal with the problem. And one of the arguments I make in my book is that we should avoid the peril of what I call incrementalism, because you end up with small missions that can't cope. And I was in some of those missions. Uh, they get overwhelmed. And then everybody says, well, peacekeeping is failing. I think that's unfair. And that's a comment that we have heard throughout the history of peacekeeping, especially in the press. Let's go to your book. So you wrote this book. Let's tell the audience a little about, yeah. about the book. The book is in four parts. You may want to yeah. just give us an overview yeah. of what's in there. Well, it's about, about my uh, decade in four different peacekeeping operations in Africa. It isn't an academic work. <laughs> And the reason for that, actually, in part, is because when I was thinking about writing the book and I talked to some friends and, uh, who are in the academic world, they strongly advised me, don't try to write an academic work. We have plenty of those. What we need to hear and know is what was it like within those missions? What were the problems, the day-to-day -day difficulties that you ran into? We want to hear what it is to be inside the wheelhouse uh, not just describing the water. So that's what I try to do. I hope, while it's not an academic work, I, I, I try to make it more than just a string of anecdotes and war stories. So I try to draw some conclusions, try to draw some recommendations based on those experiences, while recognizing, you know, that it's difficult to generalize from, from sometimes from these situations. The book itself starts with part one is about what I've called uh, the West African Wars, which is about three countries in West Africa, neighbors, that all descended over the space of 15, 20 years, for different reasons in each case, into civil war. And the UN was asked to, to help contain, resolve those wars in Sierra Leone, Cote d'Ivoire, and Liberia. The second part deals with the Congo. This is where, as I said, 60 years ago, modern peacekeeping was first invented and, and deployed. The Congo is a vast country. As you may know, it's the size of Western Europe. It, it dwarfs countries like Liberia and Sierra Leone. It's an immense country uh, with immense resources, 
with a troubled checkered past, as I refer to in, in the book. But it's a country of vast, vast potential, enormous creativity. I mean, if you're interested in art and music, the Congo is the place to go. I mean, it's just quite extraordinary. Now a country of perhaps 70, 80 million people, but still um, an enormous, uh, enormous country. Sadly, without much infrastructure, which adds to all the other complications. So I felt the Congo was really, in a way, the heart of the book. And so I spent a whole, put a whole part of the book on, on the Congo, partly also because I was there before. I was there during the time of Sese Mobutu, the man who came to epitomize, in some ways, the, the Congo and its problems. I was there as he, his regime collapsed. And of course, I came back for peacekeeping. So I have a, a great personal attachment to the country. Uh, the third part of the book, I, I try to step back and look, well, what did all of this mean? What did I learn from this? You know, when you're very close to things, it's hard to be objective. And I mentioned this in the book. When I, when I came, when I finally finished, I, I wrote my end of mission uh, report for the Secretary General. And... Um, I never heard any more. <laughs> I got one letter from his chef de cabinet saying, thank you very much, et cetera, et cetera. Pro forma, but nice. And then no more. And some years later, a former colleague discovered my report had been classified confidential and filed away somewhere. And I was really irritated by that. But then, you know, time passes. And I thought, well, maybe that's not such a bad thing. You know, when, you're in, when you live in, in what I call the cauldron, in these very intensive situations, you're pulled into them, and, and you do lose objectivity, and I'm, I, I admit that in the book. So it was not such a bad thing to have had some time to step back, think about what it meant across the four, the four missions for peacekeeping, but also for the UN and how the UN works and how we interact with the outside world. The fourth part is an effort to look a little bit to the future, but I also include there some... some uh, parts deal with what it's like to lead UN missions. Uh, I felt it was important to talk about some of the challenges you face. You know, these, these are the ones I led were a billion dollar plus per annum. They're, these are major enterprises in a way. So in some respects, you're considered as the CEO, the chief executive officer, but you're not. And um, so I, I explore that in, in the book. And then I look to the future a little bit. You know, will there be a future of peacekeeping? I say quite openly, I hope not, because, you know, we should do better at preventing conflict. Sadly, we're not. The UN is not pulled into, except at the political level, of course, into peacekeeping in massive operations of, that are of direct, immediate concern to the great powers or the large powers or perhaps to some of the, 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 the regional powers. The UN tends to get involved in so-called second-tier uh, conflicts, as I call them. But they're very important because one of the things, you, you know, actually, we do live in a more peaceful world. It's hard to believe that. But there's plenty of academic work out there which shows that direct war casualties have dropped dramatically in the last 50, 60 years. However, what hasn't dropped are what I call these second-tier conflicts. And there's a danger because what we're seeing now again, places like Libya, we've seen it in Syria, if not handled well and quickly, they metastasize. They draw in proxies and then they become a first-tier conflict. And those are infinitely harder to handle. So peacekeeping is really important in my view. 
And that's why we need to keep it in good repair, to be sure that it's been a proven instrument, a multi, not a perfect instrument. I'd be the first to admit that. I mean, and I was part of some of those failures. So it's not a perfect instrument, but it's an important instrument. And we should be very careful. A lot of experience has been acquired over the years. So I wanted to look a little bit, peer into the future and see what might lie ahead for us and what changes we need to make if we are to uh, ensure that peacekeeping can continue to play a productive, useful role, assuming, sadly, that conflict will not entirely disappear in the next few years. And maybe a few decades, maybe a few centuries, given yeah. the Well, as the I said, the a- academic work seems to show that we do live more peacefully. I mean, uh, Stephen Pinker in particular from Harvard, but not the only one, uh, his work in turn is based on academic studies, some of the peace institutes in Norway and Sweden and, and Canada and so forth. However, as I say, small, and I, I use a quote from uh, William, Richard III in one of my last chapters about how small storms come suddenly and can be very, uh, very dangerous, even though they're, they're over shortly. And I think that's what we have to be aware of. And just for our audience, so let's remind the title of the book, A Peacekeeper in Africa, Learning from UN Interventions in Other People's Wars. In this book, you just mentioned there are four parts, and the fourth is dedicated to your experience in leading these operations. And so I imagine that um, running a peacekeeping operation can teach a lot about leading complex situations. We have regularly here on the podcast um, experts and leaders with whom we like to talk about leadership in the international community. So your experience as a leader in these complex situations, what can you share with our listeners? Well, there's a lot to share. And of course, the, the risk is that you, um, you you look back on the things that went well and <laughs> less uh, on the things that didn't go so well. And, and leadership is both, uh, to be very honest. Peacekeeping, though, presents unique challenges of leadership. Why? Because it's a mosaic, if you will, of humanity. You know, we draw troops, police from dozens of countries. We have civilians, sometimes 30, 40 different countries, like in the Congo. So it's amazing how we get all those people together and try to keep them on the same page, working together to implement the mandate, if you will, the responsibilities that the Security Council has given us. So I think that's the first really important level of working in an organization, a multilateral, multinational organization, is this need to somehow find common ground, bring people together around some core issues, concerns, and, and challenges that have to, be, uh, have to be taken on. And that means spending a lot of time with people. Something I did emphasize a lot in my book, how much time I spent out there, not just with UN staff and soldiers, and, and by UN staff, I mean not just peacekeeping staff. You mustn't forget that those who were there before, during, and after, often from the UN agencies like UNHCR, the UN Development Program, the World Food Program, UNICEF, I mean, you name them. They're there, they stay there, and they're there afterwards. So working with all of them to build that sort of UN uh, team approach, but also, most importantly, with national, local people, you know, and not just politicians, but, you know, uh, people from the communities of faith. I found it extremely important. I, I talk quite a bit about that, in, particularly in the chapter on the Congo, where the, the church is, is very important and is very close to the people. 
but civil society alone, I mean, to be honest, civil society sometimes is not very civil because civil society can be instrumentalized by one political group, one faction or another, and you become the, um, the, the, you go into a discussion hoping to engender some, engender some kind of consultation and uh, discussion, and, but you end up, frankly, in a, if you're not careful, in a shouting match where everybody wants to make it clear why you're failing because you haven't supported their group or their militia or their faction or their perspective. But working with women's groups, for example, I found always found very productive because they, uh, I'm not saying that to be politically correct, uh, because they had a perspective on the conflict, which was, of course, very, very important because they were too often not just victims in war, but also victims in peace. And I think it was very important to understand and hear from women. You do all of that. It's exhausting. It takes vast amounts of your time. And sometimes it can be very frustrating when you don't feel you're getting your word across. You know, you get criticized if you do, you get criticized if you don't. And you're working with a multitude of groups, people, including, you know, foreign NGOs and so forth who have their perspective. Even within the UN, it's sometimes complex. You have different views, you have the political views, you have the humanitarian views, the human rights views, you have the development views and so forth. Just trying to get the UN to come together around some common ideas and approaches. So I think the key, though, is meeting, being out there. And as Kofi Annan always stressed to his staff, including the years we were together at the foundation, is listening. Uh, listening, listening, listening. Those were very much his, his watchwords, if you will. So I think that's a key element in, in leadership. There are others that I outline in the book. You know, it's, uh, it helps to have sometimes a sense of humor, uh, even the most darkest days. It's important to um, try to understand, to relate. Patience, I didn't have much of it, especially when you get tired and, and really a bit overwhelmed. And you get these periods when nothing but nothing goes right. And uh, having the fortitude and the resilience to, to stand up and find a way beyond the problems is, is very challenging and demanding. But very really critical. And as I say, I, I would not claim to be have all those aptitudes. You, know, you, you try, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and I'm often remembered of, of I think it's uh, Beckett's words about, was it Samuel Beckett who said, uh, fail, fail again, fail again better. I sometimes felt I was in that role in peacekeeping. But, uh, but there were successes too. And those were great moments, great joy when you, you see things are working. People are coming home, schools are opening, kids are learning. That, that makes it all seem worthwhile. You mentioned Kofi Annan, and for many of us, he's, he's the figure of, yeah. of leadership yeah. uh, in, international, in international governance. So you've been working with him in the UN and also after your experience with the UN. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about um, his leadership style, what yeah. you learned, yeah, yeah. you know, how that figure influenced you in your work, both in the UN and then after. Well, he is a great person in so many ways. I think it's important that when you, you, you look at him and his life, his achievements, many, many achievements, to separate the, him as an individual and him as a, as a, if you will, as a leader, in the sense that he had this amazing temperament which very few people have, I certainly don't have, you know, this ability to stay calm, to look beyond the individual 
and to recognize the worth of people, even people who had not been very loyal or faithful to him, who would actually quite the opposite. He was more interested in what they had to say than who they were in that sense. So that was his, this remarkable temperament. And what you saw really was what you, what you got. There weren't two coffee Annans in that sense. You know, this calm temper was not a face for the public. It's exactly the same in private. Always a willingness to listen was one of his hallmarks. I think his, that's what he emphasized always to the staff, particularly uh, more junior staff members, you know, listen carefully. Don't arrive at any conclusions. Uh, think about who you're talking to be willing to um, change your mind and be willing to go beyond the individual. You know, there are always people you encounter in professional life you're not particularly fond of, who may not have been very nice to you either. He was able to go beyond that. And sometimes that was, a, and consult. I mean, if we ever were getting into something, uh, we would consult a lot of people. I sometimes would say, well, how many more? Because, you know, the trouble with consulting widely is you ask for more than one opinion, you'll get dozens of them. But he was always, said, no, 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 let's talk to X, Y, and Z. So those were really important features of leadership, which I think apply across the board. But there was the human side to Kofi Annan, which not that many people may, his intimates knew. I mean, uh, I was always astonished how much time he would find to make a call to a former colleague who was going through difficult times, illness or other problems, personal problems, family problems. It was just amazing how he was able to keep in touch with people like that. Uh, he had that, um, that human touch that people really appreciated. And he would never get irritated by that at all. I mean, I was with him on trips when um, we'd go somewhere and, you know, he was a VVIP and we'd be going through a security line or something. And I remember once, this was actually in Davos, and uh, we were going into this place and uh, the, the security guy stopped and said, oh, well, uh, take off your jacket and sort of basically undo your shoelaces. It was that sort of place. And then at the last moment, the security supervisor came along and saw Mr. Annan and knew he was on the Viva release. And he, he got quite irritated with the, the chap who was doing the thing. And I always remember, he said, no, no, no. Really, he's just doing his job. Other people would have blown up and said, don't you know who I am? You know, I'm never, I never once heard him say that. And I went through many security lines with him in airports and the rest of it. Yeah, of course, he got the, normally the VIP treatment, but there were times when he didn't. And he never, ever lost his cool with people. So that's his job. That's what he's here for. I don't mind. Those are the sorts of things you remember about him and the calls he would make. How are the children? How do you know somebody's sick? That, I think, made him uh, quite a unique person besides his political acumen, which was second to none. I think he read people very well. Um, he was patient. He tried to find out things. His sense, I often was quite astonished how he um, would think, you know, not just one step, two, three steps ahead and would see the issues that would come up. And and he never rushed, ever, into things. I mean, he'd get a call saying, Kofi, we need you to do this, you need to do that. So yeah, yeah, that's interesting, etc." Then he'd do his homework. Never rushed, in my experience, into anything. And you worked a lot with him in the foundation, within the Kofi Annan Foundation. I wonder how your journey with the UN and in peacekeeping prepared you for this different job that yeah. you've been carrying out and you're still uh, the, the president of the foundation. How, what, what, how did one prepare you 
for yeah. the second? Well, a lot of the issues we deal with as a foundation, you know, resonate with work that I did in the UN in my different capacities. So in, in that sense, it was good preparation, if you will, for the uh, foundation. But in a foundation, even you know, it carries a huge name, but you don't carry the burden of when you're in an organization like the UN, which is a very hierarchical, but also is um, you're part of a bureaucracy, but you're also a part of a bureaucracy that's constantly under scrutiny. It, it is very difficult sometimes. You have to be quite careful what you say. You, you have to be aware that, um, for example, um, I often said to new colleagues, you know, there are no secrets in the UN. <laughs> if you can't say it, don't write it. So there's a degree of self-censorship, which is perhaps not healthy, but frankly, is a natural response. So moving from that environment, where I try to be innovative and push things and speak when necessary, into a foundation where you know, you, you feel a sense, almost a sense of liberation. You can do things, say things, take risks that it is much harder to do in an international organization of whatever, whether it's the UN or any other, or it's World Bank and so forth. But I, at least I had a background in all of these areas, working with UN colleagues and, of course, a, a, a good network, not to be compared with Kofi Annan's network, by the way, which was just remarkable. I mean, uh, he could pick up the phone to just about anybody in the world. But it, it helped a lot in the sense that, you know, you know your way around the international scene. You know what uh, might work, what might cause problems, how you have to approach certain certain issues. Uh, we do a lot of work, for example, on elections and democracy, which is a very sensitive issue, but you have to work with governments. But you also need to work with civil society, political parties, and so forth. What is the work? What is the foundation do? Now, we have you here, so we want to seize this opportunity for our listeners. You know, the Coffee Man Foundation, what are the, the, the three main things that you carry out? out there? Well, our overall strapline, as you call it in the media business, is to um, try to work towards or working towards achieve a fairer, more peaceful world, which is very much in line with Mr. Annan's great concerns. We've distilled that down into three principal areas of focus. One is, uh, as I said, working on elections and democracy. Mr. Ryan was a great believer in democracy everywhere in the world, and he was a, a protagonist for democracy and felt that um, we, we should do our best in a time when, sadly, faith in democracy is declining worldwide, except for one or two areas, um, do our best. And, and part of that passes by making sure elections are done well and they're legitimate. So working on democracy and elections is a key focus of, of our work. The second big area is working with countries that have, are escaping, if you will, or coming out of violent conflict. So what we've called uh, help uh, facilitating transitions to peace. We're just a small part of this, but we've done a lot of, quite a lot of work on truth-seeking. Does it work? How does it work? Reconciliation, again, we always talk about reconciliation, but does it work? Where does it work? How has it worked? And third, accountability. How do we ensure accountability? Recognize that we will, in particularly where there's been mass conflict and atrocities, you will only ever be able to address a small part of the accountability issue, those most responsible. And even then it's difficult. And how do you bring these elements together? So we've done a lot of work in that area and continuing to do so in various parts of, of, of the world. And then the third area is youth, you know, empowering youth, engaging with youth. Mr. Ryan was a great, great proponent of youthful engagement. 
He, his favorite fora, if I can put it that way, was not making a very formal hour-long lecture or speech. His, his best form, the one he enjoyed most, was sitting down in an armchair with a young person in front of an audience of young people, students, whoever, and just talking about issues that were of concern to them and what you know people of his generation could do to help them. So working with young people, we've got a particular program called Extremely Together, which works with young leaders around the world on problems of extremism. Young people are both the principal victims, but also perpetrators of, of, of violent extremism. So how do we do that? So we brought together a group of young leaders and say, but it's a peer-to-peer -peer initiative. We provide the platform. The last thing we want to do is, a sort of, frankly, a bunch of old white guys in suits telling young people how to deal and lead their lives. It doesn't work. But when they talk to each other, exchange their stories, how they've dealt with those problems in their own communities, it makes a huge difference. So we've been very happy to do that. And we hope to start a new program called Kofian and Changemakers, bringing together young people again from communities around the world, not necessarily those who have, you know, X number of degrees, PhDs, but who are working in their communities to change things and to then put them in touch with people who work with Kofi Annan. You know, sort of a, an intergenerational dialogue. So the idea is very much the, the sort of the Kofi Annan, Kofi Annan in an armchair approach. And uh, we hope to start that program later this year. So those are the three things. We also do a lot, of course, to support the legacy of Kofi Annan. Uh, we get lots of demands. So we've, we, we kind of call this Vision Annan. Uh, people asking to lectures or prizes, whatever it is. So those all have to be looked at because we want to be sure that his name is well respected around the world. We're also looking at, um, as a tool, to what extent we can use uh, the digital world to, to help shape and uh, reinforce the influence. Our challenge is that Mr. Allen was an immensely influential individual. He's not there, but uh, what he stood for still is. And we want to try to ensure that that goes forward. Well said. This is very powerful. Thank you. Let's go back to your to your book for a final wrap up, final thoughts, yeah. and especially where people can yeah. can purchase the book, how they can yeah. get hold of it. Yeah. Well, on the purchasing, I'm told it will be on if it isn't already the ubiquitous Amazon. Uh, plus my publisher, who's a it's very interesting. It's a small publishing house based in the United States, the name of Lynn Rayner. Lynn does academic works, and she hadn't published a work quite like the one, uh, but she was very interested. And she uh, teamed up, and I'm very grateful to the International Peace Institute in New York, um, led by Turi Larson, uh, Ruth Larson, uh, to publish this. It's a bit of a new venture for them. So um, I'll be in New York next week to, uh, to do that, to launch the book. It was, it was quite an experience. You know, when you spent four decades or more writing two-page memos uh, in very bureaucratic language, to branch out into writing chapters was, was, was a challenge. Uh, but once you get over that immediate challenge, it, it actually, you, you tend then to write too much. So it was good. I had good editors at Lynn Reiner and also with, with IPI in New York who, who helped me uh, through that process. So um, the foundation sent me on a number of long trips and you sit in an airplane for 12 hours or something and uh, it's actually a good place to write, I've discovered. You know, nobody to disturb you. You just sit there and write. And so, so I've heard, yeah, yeah, that many people actually use those long yeah, flights to, yeah. to write. Yeah, yeah, indeed. 
Fantastic. So a peacekeeper in Africa, learning from UN intervention in other people's war. It's available. It's out there. And Alan Doss, thank you very much for being with us on our podcast. I think we have enough material to invite you again next year telling to tell us about this new program you're launching at the at the Coffee Nine Foundation. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Francesco, for this opportunity. Really, it was a great pleasure. <laughs>